This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes, and he profaned the temple in Jerusalem in 156 B.C. During the so-called intertestamental period, intertestamental period, uh, just before the coming of Christ, there were 400 years of prophetic silence. And that's when Alexander the Great took off and took over the then-known world in a rapid splurge of capture of country after country after country. And then he died. He died in his early 30s and left four major generals to take over his empire. And those four generals divided up his empire for themselves after Alexander's death in 323 B.C. And one of the most aggressive and successful leaders was a fellow known as Antiochus Epiphanes. Actually, Antiochus was one of the four that inherited Alexander the Great's great, uh, shall we say, worldwide conquest. And so Antiochus Epiphanes was the most brutal of the post-Alexandrian rulers acquired, and he acquired the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, which meant actually that he was the manifestation of God. And he truly believed that. He was a Hellenistic king of the Seleucid Empire. Hellenistic meaning he came from the Greek. He was of the Greek uh, power base from Alexander the Great. And he desired to cause his entire empire, which was vast, he caused it, wanted to cause it, to become increasingly and totally Hellenized. In other words, to the extent of actually destroying anyone else who would oppose the culture of Greece. Well, those countries included the modern nations of Israel, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, Iran, Central Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Turkmenistan. You can see this was a huge huge empire. And this was only one part of Alexander the Great's empire, controlled and ruled by one of the most horrific tyrants in history. That's right. Antiochus Epiphanes, who considered himself to be, as we should say, the manifestation of God or God in the flesh especially of the Greek god. And so when he found resistance in Israel to the Hellenization, he became furious beyond furious and decided to take it out on the Jewish people and uh, came back roaring and decided to attack and display a horrific, blasphemous image of Zeus in the temple. And then when the Jewish people rebelled against it, he said, okay, I'll fix that. And destroyed the temple. 
and offered a pig on the temple altar in December, on December 16th, 167 B.C. And after that came a resistance led by a group in a family called the Maccabees. And the Maccabees fought against this Hellenistic rule for a number of years and finally regained the temple, regained the temple mount and declared victory. But it was short-lived. However, that victory has been celebrated for years since then with a celebration called Hanukkah. Hanukkah, which actually the Hebrew word for Hanukkah means dedication. And so in the Bible, you will not find the word Hanukkah per se, but you will find the Feast of Dedication. So it preserves the epic struggle and the heroic exploits of one of the greatest Jewish victories of all time, that is the independence from Greco-Syrian oppression in 165 B.C. Now, before we go further to talk about Hanukkah per se, we're going to take a look at what's happening with, shall we say, Hanukkah 2.0, or at least the events leading up to perhaps Hanukkah 2.0. And that would be the events that are taking place right now. Taking place in Israel, in Gaza, and as the rest of the world, not just within the residue of Alexander the Great's empire, but now the whole world is gathering together in antipathy toward Israel and opening their arms increasingly to a group of people led by Hamas that seek only to destroy, absolutely destroy, not the temple because it doesn't exist, but the Jewish people as a whole. It's called mass genocide. It's called the hope for mass genocide, preaching the doctrine of mass genocide, and it's happening everywhere. In fact, it's kind of taken the Jewish people by surprise around the world. They are accustomed to anti-Semitism on a low-level scale, but now they're experiencing it at a much higher-level scale. And I have in my hands here probably 15 articles that show how vast this problem really is, how great it is, and how the memory of Hanukkah now is taking on all new meaning and import within the Jewish community around the world. And so I welcome you to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chris Myers. Conversation is always, with ever-increasing conviction, talk that transforms. And today... You say, well, how could this be transforming for me? Well, it could be, depending on what your attitude is or has been concerning Israel or concerning the issue of the uh, so-called Palestinian people, of which there is no such people, not not truly, uh, and there certainly has never been a country, so to speak, called Palestine. There was a location, a geographical location, that the Romans called Palestine, which was inhabited by the Jewish people at the time of Christ. But there is no people and no capital for a people ever called the Palestinians or Palestine per se. So, 
With that having been said, we're going to dig a little deeper into this matter of Hanukkah, its background and its implications for us, because I believe that there are implications for us. And we'll see some of those implications, perhaps, as we go through and look at some of the responses around the world, and yes, in the United States of America, concerning the matter of the call for the genocide of the Jewish people and the destruction of Israel, all purportedly to make room for a people group that never existed and who never had a capital. Are you ready for this? We'll be back. This is Viewpoint. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. From the Jerusalem Post today came this headline, The Significance of Hanukkah 5784. That is, from the Jewish perspective, the year 5784 since creation. Now, just to make a statement, uh, that number is not necessarily accurate, not even necessarily close to accurate, because there was a radical change or loss of numbering Uh, many, many centuries ago uh, with the rabbis. And uh, it's very likely, some have estimated, that the difference in the numbering could be as much as 150 to 200 years difference. Well, that would make a huge difference, because it would bring us very close to the year 6,000, wouldn't it? And the year 6,000 would culminate six millennia since creation, meaning that we would be on the cusp of the seventh millennium, perhaps having already entered into the seventh millennium, or closely soon entering into the seventh millennium, which would be, well, what is called the great millennial reign of Christ or Yeshua. You can see then that the numbering might be important, but we don't have it established precisely. But we do know the general season, and we're in that season, and we're seeing that season being manifested by what is taking place in the last two months, the last 60 days in Israel and Gaza. Going to the Jerusalem Post today, their comment this year, the festival of Hanukkah carries profound weight, resonating with the echoes of a nation entrenched in a great battle, an ongoing struggle to defend our homeland. Our present circumstances mirror those faced by the Jews during the time of the Maccabees, pitting us against powerful adversaries and overwhelming odds. While our nation boasts an advanced military arsenal, our enemies supported by Iran pose a formidable or formidable threat, intent on encircling and attacking from all sides. And this is not a brief skirmish, but a protracted war, one that's already persisted for 60 days. And it's being said that will last for at least another year. 
Hanukkah's historical narrative, dating back over 2,200 years, offers a poignant source of inspiration during these trying times, says the Jerusalem Post. The ancient Jews, facing an insidious attempt at Hellenization, that is, turning everything to Greek culture, Greek religion, and so on, rose in revolt against foreign efforts to suppress their religious identity. So the Maccabees emerged victorious, not only defeating their enemies, but also illuminating the menorah in the temple with oil that, at least from a cultural standpoint, is said to have endured miraculously for eight days. So, as the Jerusalem Post concludes, as we kindle the first light of Hanukkah tonight and partake in traditional festivities, the mood is inevitably more somber this year. And rightly so. More somber this year. In fact, profoundly more somber this year. And we're going to see exactly what that looks like. For instance, the uh, chairman of Vad Vashem, the, uh, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center, has voiced in a congressional hearing voice grave concerns over the rising tolerance for anti-Semitic, uh, anti-Semitic rhetoric on college campuses. Actually, I don't know that he was actually in the hearing, but he was responding to what was testified by the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and University of Pennsylvania uh, in that uh, congressional hearing. So he said he's on, he voiced grave concerns over the rising tolerance for anti-Semitic rhetoric on college campuses. The statement specifically criticized the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and UPenn for their alarming indifference. The chairman expressed shock at their stance during the hearing, stating, Yad Vashem is extremely alarmed by their refusal to claim that genocidal calls against Jews do not violate universal policy and code of conduct. He reacted strongly. Any university, situation, or society that can contextualize and excuse calls for genocide is doomed. Well, when you look at what's happening in response, you might conclude that to be true. So, we take a look at some things that are happening here. Uh, at our universities, all in response to uh, the attack there in Israel, the attack in Israel by Hamas. Here we go. First, Ross Stevens, the founder and CEO of Stone Ridge Asset Management, has withdrawn a $100 million donation in the wake of the University of Pennsylvania's president's congressional testimony. $100 million. He's not happy. He's not happy with the direction that the University of Pennsylvania, as led by their president, is going. Next. 
An Ivy League school, that is Harvard, was slammed or taken heat by these words. Change your name to Hamas University and be done with it. If you're going to be the way you are, and if the testimony of your president, another female, before Congress is right, then you might as well change the name of your university to Hamas University from Harvard University. This is pretty strong stuff, I would think. Then from the Jerusalem Post, a rabbi stressed that he believes Harvard University is the repository of extraordinary minds and important research, but He is so distressed by the testimony of Harvard's university president before Congress that he has announced his resignation from the Anti-Semitism Advisory Committee at Harvard University. These are the reactions of people. Columbia University students held a teach-in in justifying Hamas massacre despite the school claiming to have shut it down. Well, the school didn't shut it down. They just said, we're not going to allow it. But they didn't shut it down. In fact, they did allow it by not doing anything about it. And so they allowed the students to come together in a mass demonstration, a teach-in, to justify the Hamas attack on Israel. This is the spirit that is uh, making its way, metastasizing like a fast-moving cancer through America. America, the land of the free, supposedly, increasingly becoming only the home of the brave, especially brave Jewish people. Yet it was a Jewish woman who wrote the text at the bottom of the Statue of Liberty, give me your uh, tired, your weary, your yearning, folks, yearning to be free, I lift my hands by the open door. A Jewish woman wrote that. It appears that that open door is not so open anymore, yet we're opening our southern border to anybody and everybody that will come through, including terrorists, including uh, a thousand Chinese men that just came through this week. It's as if it is an open corridor, more than a corridor, an entire southern border, open to the invasion of a people group that have no place to be here no right to be here, no legal right to be here, and who may be very dangerous, and yet we are trying to stop Israel, our Secretary of State, trying to stop Israel from defending itself by ridding itself of Hamas. A Jewish dad, Mr. Kolbersh, An actor and a single father who lives in Los Angeles said he's afraid to publicly identify his family as Jewish. 
He said, in the past few months alone, multiple anti-Semitic incidents have rattled the L.A. Jewish community, including a home invasion which locals believe the house was targeted because of the mezuzah signifying that Jews live there. So, again from the Jerusalem Post, Israel to be hit by a tsunami of depression in the wake of the Hamas massacre. And you can understand why. They're talking this probably will be a scale of post-trauma like Israel has never before experienced. And it's happened so suddenly. And it's continuing to happen and spread like wildfire, not just in America, but all over Europe. This article comes from the Israel National News called The Moral Collapse of the West. Melanie Phillips, a British journalist and broadcaster, has written this piece. Refusing to distinguish between Hamas aggressors and their Israeli victims, liberals scream for a ceasefire. No one, though, is calling for Hamas to surrender, which would stop all the killing immediately. And that's true. But they won't call for Hamas to surrender because they have taken the side of Hamas on behalf of the so-called Palestinian people that were created by the Arab nations who determined to destroy Israel in 1948 the moment they declared statehood as a nation. They told those so-called Palestinian folk, the Arabs in that land, to leave because they were going to come in and wipe it out and push it into the sea. So the people, the Arab folk, now referred to as Palestinians, left. There were about 800,000 of them that left. They were herded into camps. And then the Arab nations that promised them the land back never fulfilled their promise. They lost in a battle to Israel and refused to extend any hospitality to bring those 800,000 people who had fled in the face of the coming attack from the surrounding Arab nations. You're not being told that, but that's the truth. And they refuse to receive them into their land. Egypt refuses. Jordan refuses. Syria refuses. They all refuse to take those people into their land. Why? I believe the reason is they want to continue to use them as political pawns against Israel. When Representative John James, Republican of Michigan, asked the three presidents of Harvard and University of Pennsylvania and MIT what they were doing to fight anti-Jewish hatred, he was met by silence as they looked at each other. They said the behavior of these three Ivy League school heads was shocking to the extreme. But how can anyone truly be astonished given what's been happening to education over the past several decades? Educationists and administrators are failing to act 
against anti-Semitism, not just out of cowardice, but because they themselves subscribe to all parts of the warped and morally bankrupt mindset at this core, at the core of this event. They've allowed identity politics, intersectionality, and victim culture to invest campuses across the West, refusing to take any countermanding action. And these dogmas involve a wholesale breakdown in norms of morality and rationality. So, Melody Phillips says, it's the moral collapse of the West. Hmm. Well, what happens with the moral collapse of the rest of the West? We'll see that when we get back. Stay tuned, my dear friends. This is the first day of Hanukkah, and we're experiencing Hanukkah 2.0, in a sense. Deja vu all over again. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. SaveUS.org. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at SaveUS.org. Also, a letter to pastors, the Hosea Project, saveus.org, and many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, saveus.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archived. Save America Ministries website at saveus.org. Again, I welcome you back to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chris Meyer. While the calls from the river to the sea continue to echo forth in banners and verbal marches across America and in Europe, apparently the majority of those who are making those cries don't even know what river or what sea they're talking about. In fact, a recent survey of 250 college students from across the U.S., some 86% supported the Palestinian chant from the river to the sea. But only 47% were able to name the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea as the boundaries that the slogan talked about. When 80 of the 250 students were shown on a regional map, that a new Palestinian state would stretch from Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, leaving no room for Israel, three-fourths of them changed their support to probably not. In other words, there's vast ignorance. These young people are being choreographed by the wickedness behind it coming from the pulpits of America's universities and colleges supported by the monies of people like George Soros and the echoing uh, shall we say uh, various groups that fall within the broader sphere of those which George Soros is involved like the Tides Foundation and so on all of those groups they're all contributing to this mindset financing it 
John Kirby, our National Secretary Council Coordinator for Strategic Communications, answered questions during a daily press briefing at the White House. And he said, Sadly, I think it's safe to assume that they, that is Hamas, are still using sexual violence as a weapon. Now, Israel, Israeli medical experts and survivors have testified that during the attack, women were raped before they were killed or killed during the act of rape and that their bodies were sexually mutilated, including cutting off breasts and mutilating genitals. Well, it's more than that. It's more than that. They actually specifically and directly sought to mutilate, to fire their guns up the vaginas of women, to to surgically uh, cut away at breasts and play with them, even while they were performing sex acts. These people, friends, are like beasts. They're acting like beasts. They're now acting like human beings made in the image of God. This, unfortunately, falls very closely in line with what God said to Abraham, or actually said to uh, Hagar, the bondservant of Abraham's wife, who gave a son to Abraham called Ishmael. And God himself said to Hagar, your son will have 12 princes come out of him, but he and they will be wild people, wild men. I didn't say that. God said that. So what are we seeing? What are we seeing playing playing out? Isn't that largely what we're seeing being played out? So Steven Spielberg, I'm sure you know his name, the Jewish director, condemned what he called unspeakable brutality of the Hamas massacre. Unspeakable brutality. Now that leads us then back to the original setting for Hanukkah. So let's take a look at that. Let's take a look at what happened there as Antiochus Epiphanes turned his attention to the temple on Mount Zion. He was in a a mode to completely destroy, to destroy Jerusalem in the heat of his violent wrath. The houses were burned, the walls of the city were breached, tens of thousands were killed or sold into slavery. Then Antiochus had turned his attention to the temple on Mount Zion. He erected an idol of Zeus, the supreme deity of the Greek pantheon, on the holy altar in the courtyard. And it bore the face of Antiochus or Antiochus himself. On the birthday of Zeus... December 25th, Antiochus offered a pig on the altar. The ultimate abomination of the Jewish mind and heart. 
He sprinkled its blood in the Holy of Holies and poured its broth over the Holy Scrolls before he cut them to pieces and burned the scrolls. Shock and horror, friends. And the nation revealed. You can revealed. You can understand. It was trauma. The sanctuary of the Most High God, where he had chosen to place his name there, had been polluted and profaned, desecrated and defiled by a man who claimed to be the manifestation of God himself. In other words, a type, an advanced type or prefiguration of the ultimate Antichrist to come. So Antiochus issued an edict forbidding the practice of Judaism on pain of death. And he enforced it by searching houses. If Sabbath was observed or dietary laws were kept or circumcision performed or scrolls of the law were found, the whole family was put to death. Sounds like a hoss, doesn't it? Babies were hung around their mother's necks and women were thrown from the walls of the cities. Sounds like a mosque, doesn't it? The line had been drawn. You either join or be annihilated. You either do what we say or be annihilated. So, you can well imagine that dark days followed. Very dark days, filled with terror and persecution. We now call that persecution anti-Semitism. In the church, we call it persecution. The people fled to the wilderness, to the Judean hills, to live in caves. They were hunted like animals. A time of intense suffering, thousands sacrificed their lives to remain true to God. Jehovah, Jehovah. Eliezer, 90 years of age, one of the principal scribes, was brought before Antiochus and commanded to eat swine's flesh. He refused to defile himself and break the law of God. So the soldiers asked him to bring his own lawful meat and eat it as if it were the detestable pork. After an eloquent statement of faith, he remained unmoved, not willing to deceive the young people with his example. So with that, the soldiers beat him mercifully, mercilessly until he died. Another account relates to the enduring courage of a woman named Hannah. I just saw a young lady by the name of Hannah yesterday. I don't even remember where it was. I just happened to see her name and her seven sons. That is, this woman, back at the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. She had seven sons. They were arrested and compelled to eat swine's flesh, and thereby assent to the pagan sacrifice. One by one, her sons were tortured, and when they refused to yield, they were boiled alive in cauldrons. Sounds like Hamas, doesn't it? 
When one son was approached to apostatize or have his tongue and hands cut off, he courageously made this statement. These I had from heaven, and for his laws, I despise them. And from him, I hope to receive them again. Another son affirmed before he died, it is good being put to death by men to look for hope from God to be raised up again by him. As the last son was pressed to deliver himself by apostatizing, his mother encouraged him with the resurrection. Finally, the mother was put to death. All eight of them steadfastly refused deliverance in the hope of the resurrection. My dear friend, can you possibly understand why yours truly at this end of the broadcast uh, line here behind the mic would be writing a book called When Persecution Comes? It's coming. The question is, what will we do in response? What will you do in response? Syrian detachments were displayed or dispatched throughout the nation to enforce the diabolical plan of Antiochus. One such detachment came to the tiny village of Modin, just a little northwest of Jerusalem. There, they built a pagan altar to Zeus. The townspeople were assembled, and an aged priest named Matthias was singled out of the crowd. He was ordered to offer a sacrificial pig to the Greek gods in honor of Antiochus Epiphanes. Never, he replied with defiance, never. What do you think happened? What would you do? This is the story of Hanukkah and his background. We'll be right back. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. Welcome back to Viewpoint. We're taking a look at Hanukkah 2.0, or at least circumstances leading to potential Hanukkah 2.0 here today as the first candle of the menorah is being lit by Jewish people around the world 
wherever they have the courage to do so because of their fear. Their fear of the rising up of ungodly Gentiles to persecute and destroy and to drive Israel into the sea in favor of a people group that is not actually a nation and never was, never was an identifiable people group per se, historically, and never had a capital, the so-called Palestinian people, that have been created by ungodly Arab nations whose own goal was to destroy Israel and push her into the sea just as the goal of Antiochus Epiphanes was, to destroy the very heart of what it meant to be the Jewish people, to get them to defy the God of Israel, the God had led them across the Red Sea, the God who brought them across the River Jordan, the God who caused the walls of Jericho to fall down, and the God who had brought forth his only begotten son, Yeshua, to deliver them from their sin. And now it's happening all over again. Well, the ancient priest Matthias was singled out to offer a sacrificial pig to the Greek gods in honor of Antiochus or Antiochus. He said, never. And that indignation stirred in the heart of Matthias and erupted into violence. He ripped the sword from the hand of the Syrian officers and killed him. He ran forward the sword through the body of the apostate Jew and left him lying on the altar. His five sons simultaneously engaged and slew the remaining soldiers in the commotion. They and the faithful of the city fled to the hills of Judea, leaving everything behind. And so the Maccabean revolt began. And as the faithful band grew, as the word of the rebellion spread, they engaged in guerrilla warfare. The aged Matthias grew sick and died, but leadership passed to his son Judah, a military genius in his own right. He was called the Maccabee, which means the hammer. Judah, Judas Maccabeus. For three years the revolt raged. The Maccabees gradually frustrated and wore down the Syrian occupation. The forces of Judah were hardly prepared for what they were to encounter in Jerusalem when they won. They ripped their clothes and threw handfuls of dust on their heads as they wept. Oh, how desolate the nation has been made. And they immediately began to cleanse the sanctuary. They rebuilt the holy altar exactly three years to the day from its defilement. According to Jewish tradition, in the Talmud, the Maccabees found only one small cruise of unpolluted oil in the temple. So it was but one day's supply for the golden lampstand. Supposedly, Miraculously, it burned for eight days. 
until a new supply of oil could be consecrated. And there came the tradition explaining why Hanukkah is held for eight days. Is there any actual historical fact to confirm that the oil lasted for eight days? No, there isn't. It's called the Feast of Lights because of that. The principal ceremony of Hanukkah is the lightning of, lighting of candles every evening in the home and synagogue. Eight candles, one for each night of Hanukkah. Then, we look at the implications of this. You see, as a result of the Feast of Tabernacles later developed an impressive light celebration each night in the temple. Since Hanukkah celebrated the relighting of the fire on the purified altar, it was patterned after tabernacles. The emphasis upon light was borrowed naturally as well. So even though the scriptures do not directly mention Hanukkah, since the holiday was not even instituted until after the Old Testament was complete, But the events of Hanukkah were prophesied centuries before by the Hebrew prophet Daniel. And you might want to do your own research into that. So Daniel prophesied that people who do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. By the way, would that be you? Would you be one of those people who would be strong in the face of this kind of uh, uh, antipathy? persecution, and so on. In the day of Jesus, Israel was looking for the ultimate deliverer, the Messiah, who would overthrow the Roman rule then. He was supposed to usher in the golden messianic age and make it possible for the Shekinah glory of God to return to the temple. So with that thought on their minds, a group of Jewish inquirers came to Jesus, and it was... Hanukkah, or the Feast of Dedication. And Jesus was walking along in Solomon's uh, courtyard, and he was celebrating Hanukkah in the same temple that had been cleansed and rededicated just a few generations earlier. So the inquirers asked Jesus, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you're the Christ or the Messiah, tell us plainly. He had actually indeed showed them, and he had verified it with many miracles, but they had rejected him because he consistently failed to meet their messianic expectations. They were looking for a military messiah, somebody like Judas Maccabeus, you see. So, throughout the ages ages now, Gentile nations have been obsessed with desecrating the Temple Mount. And the pattern is going to continue. Because another Hanukkah event is yet in the future. In fact, it may actually be taking place as we speak. But I think not quite. Because the events of Hanukkah are merely a shadow of events at the end of this age. In fact, Daniel himself prophesied, that many within Israel will enter into a covenant or security agreement with the Gentile ruler. We call him Antichrist. And the confirmation of that covenant is going to start the clock ticking 
for a period of perhaps seven years called the 70th week of Daniel. And the prophet Isaiah called it, in Isaiah 28, a covenant with death. It's going to be an outward sign of the apostasy of the nation of Israel. In their blindness and in their fear and their desire to please the Gentile world instead of God, they're going to turn to a Gentile leader who's going to promise them peace as a counterfeit prince of peace. Then sometime around the midpoint, three and a half years a little later, Jerusalem will be captured. The Antichrist will be revealed for who he is. He's going to walk into that rebuilt temple just like Antiochus Epiphanes did and declare himself God. The Apostle Paul talked about that. Therefore, Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So, many of the faithful in Israel are going to lose their lives. As the Antichrist, just like Antiochus Epiphanes did, vents his wrath on the people of God. That time of tribulation will be like nothing the nation of Israel has ever experienced. But the whole world is going to experience it. Already is. Just like Israel, the Jewish people will be completely attacked through anti-Semitism. So professing Christians will be completely attacked by what we call persecution. You can well understand, then, why it might be necessary for all who have courage to stand, to stand in the evil day. Now, what is happening consequentially as a result of this today? Well, today, Julio Miati, who is a profound op-ed writer for Israel National News, said today that country by country, the number of Jewish people in Europe is collapsing. By 2050, he said, there will be almost no Jews left in Europe. Almost no Jews left in Europe. There's no future for them here. And their desperate love for the old and beloved continent will die. It's inevitable, said. But that's not all. The Jerusalem Post had this headline. Nearly 40% of United States ultra-Orthodox Jews are considering Aliyah. In other words, fleeing America. Because it's no longer the home of the, uh, of the free, it's becoming only the home of the brave. And they see radically rising anti-Semitism. So where does that pass across the Jewish uh, population? In the conservative Jewish segment, first you have the Orthodox. That's uh, nearly 40% uh, said they're considering leaving uh, America for Israel permanently. 
In the conservative Jewish segment, 16% are considering Aliyah. In the reformed, that is the hyper-liberal group of religious Jews, 11% are considering making Aliyah. Then across the whole board, whether religious or not religious, 22% contemplating making Aliyah. 22%. And that's right now. That's after 60 days. What will happen when this battle goes on another 60 days? And it keeps getting pressed on more and more through the colleges and universities. The foreign minister of Israel, Eli Cohen, said that the United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, actions constitute support of the Hamas terrorist organization. He says the United Nations Secretary General has endorsed, virtually endorsed Hamas as a terror group and through his invocation, through his invocation of Article 99, a rarely used mechanism that allows him to prompt a United Nations call for an immediate ceasefire to the Gaza war. In other words, Guterres, according to Cohen, is a danger to world peace. In other words, the whole United Nations now is pressing into this anti-Israel confederation. This is not just coming within Israel, friends. This is coming around the world. People get ready. Jesus is coming. Soon we're going to be coming home. How soon? I cannot tell you. But we see the season. We see the earmarks of it, don't we? Yeah, we sure do. I urge you to become a partner with us, friends, as we're continuing day after day for 28 and a half years now to prepare the way of the Lord. Confronting the deepest issues of our hearts and homes. Go to the website. Make your generous gift there. Call us, 1-800-SAVE-USA. Pray for us, please. Tell your friends, Romans, and countrymen about the program. God bless and be a blessing. You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home. 